Welcome to the Harvard College of Business podcast with your hosts, Sarah Gascon and Curry Dias. Today's guest is Andy Garlington, Chief Financial Officer of the Behavioral Health Company Centerstone. He holds dual bachelor's degrees in accounting and finance from Harvard. Andy, War Eagle, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you, War Eagle. Why did you choose Auburn, and what did you enjoy most about studying accounting and finance here? I didn't have much of a choice. Uh, I feel like it was it was chosen for me. I, I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and and actually played soccer growing up pretty competitively. Played travel soccer and and thought that was actually going to be my career. I uh, got a scholarship to Wake Forest and some other places. Ended up breaking my leg the night before prom, my senior year of high school, and so all my soccer dreams got crushed and so I had to uh, take a step back and look where I wanted to go and Auburn was an obvious choice. We had uh, 13 Garlingtons before me went to Auburn. My parents, grandparents, cousins, brother, uh, everybody. So uh, so yeah I ended up at Auburn for that reason. Didn't really have much of a choice. Glad I did. So you work for Centerstone. Could you tell us a little bit more about Centerstone's mission and purpose? Yeah, absolutely. Centerstone is a not-for-profit behavioral health company based in Nashville, Tennessee. And and, and what we do is we offer a variety of services, mostly outpatient services in the behavioral health space. And it's a wide spectrum. A couple of the the services we offer are to our, our veterans. We have military services. We have substance abuse services that we offer, school-based therapy, addiction recovery, suicide prevention is is a big area for Centerstone and and research and treatment plans for those. So yeah, lots of services, a wide breadth across the behavioral health space. And Centerstone is is not for profit, but your background is is extensively in the for-profit sector. You've been the big wig at at several hospitals in the for-profit area. What's the biggest difference in working for Centerstone versus the other facilities? Yeah, I don't know about the big wig part, but, uh, (laughs) you know, good good question. You know, my my 15 years of of prior experience before Centerstone, like you mentioned, was in the the for-profit healthcare space. I've been in long-term acute care, surgery center businesses, and then most most recently and most of the time spent in the hospital setting. And going from the for-profit hospital setting where it's, what have you done for me lately? How, what numbers have you hit this quarter? And, and the pace of things being so fast to the, the not-for-profit world has been pretty eye-opening for me, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. The pace is slower in the not-for-profit world. You know, it's a, it's a tax status being not-for-profit. And in a lot of ways, I think people think it's vastly different. And my experience is, you know, the pace of things is slower, but the care for patients is, is the same, if not more. And so that's what really attracted me to this opportunity. And as a CFO, what are some of the challenges that you're experiencing now that you didn't experience at the other organizations? You know, that's a great question. You know, most, most of the issues are, are similar, but, but one of them that I have found is within what I'll call the spectrum of the for-profit world being so fast-paced, focused so much on, on financial performance. The not-for-profit world, especially in behavioral health, being focused on emotion and care 
of the patient above all else, sometimes we lose focus of that financial component. And so you've got this full spectrum of financial stewardship and then also high quality care. And, and I know as, as a CFO, you know, I'm going to be on one extreme end of that spectrum. I'm numbers driven, focused on results. And in behavioral health and in Centerstone, you know, I feel like at times we're on this extreme other end where we're so focused on care at all costs that we probably need to, to both move towards the middle. I've said it's, it's a coin that has two sides, that financial stewardship and operational high quality care really is two sides to the same coin. And I know personally that's, that's where I'm trying to move more towards. I probably need to be a little more emotional and in touch with my emotional intelligence and awareness. And I think as an organization, we probably need to be a little bit more financially aware of decisions we need to make. So being a numbers guy in an emotion-driven organization, how do you forecast your budget? Do you look at previous data or is it based on on current social trends? How do you do that? What I've said, and I've said often here, at Centerstone is, is what gets measured gets done. And so first and foremost, we've got to measure. If we're going to be successful, how do we know if we're going to be successful or heading in the right direction if, if we don't measure those key metrics, indicators? And, and so what we've done here is, is try to incorporate as many data-driven decisions as possible to avoid some of those, those gut reactions or gut feelings that sometimes can lead you astray as, as a business. And so, yeah, it's it's tough because, again, the nature of behavioral health is very touchy-feely, and the nature of the work that we do on the finance side and what I do is, is very data-driven, data-centric. It takes time, and so we're, we're melding those two thoughts together. So what are some of your favorite KPIs, and how do they differ from a for-profit? You know, a lot of them are very similar, right? The bottom line is the bottom line. Either you're profitable or you're not. But what, what I try to do is, is take some of the, the best metrics or KPIs that you mentioned that I've learned at prior stops and incorporate them here at Centerstone. And, and so you really, if you bucket those into a couple, it's, it's what are our volume indicators, right? How many, how many clients are we seeing? How many hours of care? What's our productivity? And then also measuring those financial metrics, right? You've got your, your income statement, your balance sheet. Again, those are going to be across all companies. What I think is unique at Centerstone and and behavioral health is how much of our results are productivity driven as well, you know, hours of care, you know, you've got a whole host of other metrics that you're looking at from a behavioral health standpoint. So there are some unique attributes that we're trying to incorporate, but also take some of the best practices from from other places. Obviously, the pandemic has has thrown quite a few curveballs, especially in the business world. So as a CFO, what's one of the greatest lessons you've learned from the pandemic? It's been a doozy the last two years. You know, we, we have learned a lot and we still have a lot to learn. You know, I think first and foremost, we, we learned what we can do when given a sense of urgency, right? I remember being told, hey, let's be prepared to have our teams work from home. And, and we think it'll be about a two-week time period. That, that will be at home and, and we're two years later and we're still remote. So our ability to adapt is, is critical. And, and, and I read a book called Team of Teams and it kind of talks about this. Up until this point, it was the most efficient. Efficiency was the key goal, right? It was the most important. 
who could produce the most with the least amount of labor or work. Now it's, it's not only efficiency, but adaptability. Who can change with this changing business world, right? We've got a labor shortage that's come out of COVID. We've got all these additional steps needed, especially in the healthcare world. And, and so we've got to, to be able to adapt quickly. And whoever can do that whilst, while keeping that efficiency, I think that's who wins. Uh, and so we're constantly trying to, trying to evolve with our changing business environment. Do you have a labor shortage with your counselors and therapists? We are struggling to, to hire, to find those folks that are willing to, again, early on in the pandemic, it was who was willing to, to go and meet with patients face-to-face. -face. So many of our services are in schools or in patients' homes or in clinic settings, you know, in person. And, and so coming out of this, a lot of folks were, were hesitant to jump right back into that with the uncertainty of, of the various variants. So yeah, we absolutely have. And, and what it's done is just like, you know, typical supply and demand. The demand for our services is still very high. The supply of folks that can provide those services is decreased. We are seeing positive signs, you know, more labor in, you know, indicators are, are, are trending positively. However, we're not back to pre-COVID levels. So again, we're, we're trying to think outside the box on how we can attract, recruit, and retain uh, our labor force. Again, mostly on that clinical side. I'm really surprised to hear you say that you're not back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, from everything that I've read, COVID and the pandemic really um, exacerbated or brought to light a lot of mental health issues and a lot of substance issues. Uh, my assumption would have been that uh, these professionals would be eager to get in there and get their hands dirty. Why do you think you're having a hard time getting back to pre-COVID levels? It's a great question, and it's, it's one we're trying to figure out because you're, you're exactly right. We've got demand. We've got people waiting at our doors, right? And, and it's almost that field of uh, dreams analogy of if you build it, they will come. As soon as we, we put up a clinic or open up a space, we're, we're filled to the brim. But again, we're limited with the amount of labor and the resources, the clinicians. You know, I believe just the, the lag there and getting trained and all the, the certifications that must that our, our clinicians have to go through, there's just a lag. So we're, we're obviously pushing that and thinking outside the box of, of going offshore and, and, and potentially looking at different resources and seeing if we can attract and retain talent from other places. But absolutely, at coming out of COVID, behavioral health is has only increased in needs in our communities. What is the greatest need of the community right now? There's a lot. I'd say two that, that really stick out to me, at least, is we're doing a lot of work, as I mentioned earlier, on suicide prevention. We work a lot with military vets and military services, and it's, it is sad to hear some of the stats that are coming out from our, our various states. The amount of suicides, the amount of issues with our youth, again, being isolated and, and having to do some of the things we did during COVID, we're seeing an uptick in our school-based therapies, dealing with you know, anxiety type dis disorders. So yeah, lots, lots going on in behavioral health space and, and people are hurting. And, and so what I appreciate is, is being involved and being with a company that's making a difference. So we're trying to find ways to, to increase capital to, you know, improve financial results so that we can offer more services to more people because our communities need it. That was going to be my follow-up. What options do you have, especially a person in your position as a CFO? You're looking at numbers and data. 
And then you have the other aspect, which you alluded to earlier, which is the human side of it. Um, so how, how does that work? Yeah, so it, it, again, it's a blend of both. We've got to deliver financially, and we've got to deliver positive results so that we can create that capital and, and additional resources for us to pour back into the business. Again, being a not-for-profit allows us to pour those resources back in and, and hopefully snowball, right, and meet more needs of the business. But at times, there's, there's tough decisions. That emotional side is, is looking at the communities we serve. And sometimes what, what Centerstone is doing is, is acting as a safety net. There's not another provider in those communities, and we may be the only one offering behavioral health services. And so it, it's tough to say, hey, you know, financially, this program's not doing well. And, and so from a financial standpoint, the, the answer absolutely is to exit. But from a, a care, quality, community service standpoint, it's not so easy, right? Because you want to find a provider that you can transition them to and not just completely uh, leave those patients high and dry. So it is a blending of both. And, and again, as the financial side, this is tough for me. This is where it gets hard as a CFO to, yeah. to make those decisions. And that's, that's where I have to rely on my, my peers and, and other leaders in the organization to make sure I, I don't have blind spots, you know, as a CFO. You had mentioned that you're not profit driven, right? You also mentioned that if you build it, they will come. Yeah. So my assumption is that being not a profit-driven organization, you have slimmer margins, right? How do you find the capital to go out and build it so they can come? Yeah, great question. So we're, we're a not-for-profit, which is, again, a status, a tax status, right? Right. And so we still need and, and can turn a profit. We still need to be profitable to grow the business and, and like you said, create capital for us to reinvest. But, but we can't obviously do that all the time. Our margins are very thin, especially compared to the for-profit space. And, and so what we have the ability to do is, is apply for grants, either state or federal grants. Uh, and what's, what's great is we're, we're starting to see a lot of, a lot of positive legislation, legislation trends. Um, I think our, our legislators, you know, folks are, are really speaking up and saying we've got to increase reimbursement rates, funding for these behavioral health companies, especially those that are, like I said earlier, a safety net in a lot of our communities. So we do have the ability to apply and we do receive, you know, lots of grants. We also have a foundation where people can make donations. We've got a large part of our military services is, is funded because of, of donations. So lots of different ways to, to get access to capital, but it, it is tough going, as you can imagine. Whenever you expand into a new area, new market, how do you determine which one to choose? We try to make it, again, as data-driven as possible to see how many other, you know, do we have competitors in that space? Do we have, are there other clinicians that we can partner with? Are, are there demographic data that'll help us get an idea of what that marketplace will be? Because, again, uh, we've got so many places that we can go, but making the, and they're all good choices, but what's the best choice? How do we optimize this limited amount of resources that we have? That's the age-old question. And so, again, we try to use as much data as possible. A lot of times it comes down to relationships. Who is aware, either, either through legislators or other peers that we've worked with, what do we know about the states that we're in? We're in a four-state footprint, Indiana, Illinois, Tennessee, and Florida. 
And, and so we've been in those markets for many, many years. And so those relationships are in place. So that really helps us direct us uh, in where we should go. Sure. And, and do local or state governments, do they provide any incentives to bring an organization like Centerstone in? They do, which is, which is critical, right? There, there's a lot of our grants that are federal grants in nature, but there are a lot that are state and even local municipalities. We're starting to see a lot more local focus um, from the states that are saying, hey, the people, our constituents in the, in the state are, are saying, hey, we need help. People kind of are aware and they have some kind of personal experience with folks or personally experiencing struggles from a behavioral health or mental health standpoint. And so what I really appreciate now is, is that shame. It was almost taboo to say you were getting, you know, mental health therapy or behavioral health type services. And now that, that stigma is going away, which, which I really think is helping folks reach out and get help. I think the NFL even had a, a program, you know, saying it, it's okay to not be okay, right? They had a, a, a sponsorship program like that, which I love. It's just saying, hey, let's just be real. We were all dealing with a lot of issues before COVID, definitely after COVID. It's okay to reach out and get help. I've heard that um, rescheduling and cancellations affect the budget um, from friends that work in, in um, traditional or hospitals. Is it the same for y'all? It is. And, it, and this, is, this is something that I didn't really experience in the hospital setting. Uh, lots of cancellations and, and lots of rescheduling. And so... Many times we actually double book to make sure that, that we have a full, full, full capacity and full productivity, right? We, we have a lot of folks. So sometimes we double book patients and clients to make sure that we're seeing as many as possible because of this, this anomaly of cancellation and, and not showing up for appointments. Talk to us a little bit more about your research institute. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is, this is something that's unique, or at least to me, because of a a not-for-profit status. We've, we've actually got a pretty large research institute here that, that does a couple things for us at Centerstone. One is, is really research and, and help come up with treatment plans. We, we've got a simulation treatment plan around suicide prevention. Again, one of the largest areas that we focus on. And, and what I love is they use evidence-based treatment plans, evidence-based medicine, right? Again, coming Coming from the financial side, I love data, right? We love metrics and we love numbers and that's just the nature of what we do. And I've always wondered on the clinical side, how do you, how do you attach numbers to especially behavioral health, right? You go into a hospital or if you, you've got a heart attack or you break your leg, there, there's certain numbers, right? You get your vitals and it's very quantified. On the behavioral health side, it's not as easy to measure a lot of those. And, and what I'm learning and what our teams do a great job of is where we can measure things, making it evidence-based so that our treatment plans can be proven out over time and help more and more people. So that's- Are you collaborating with any universities or NIH um, with your research and your data? We do. We share a lot of data because, again, it, at the heart of what we want to do is, is help as many people as possible, right, provide care. And there are a lot of lessons. We, we haven't cornered the market on research by any means. And, and so a lot of academic institutions are also diving into this world and doing a lot of great research. So wherever we can, we absolutely share data and we share treatment plans, success stories, you know, to, to increase the, the quality of care to our communities. How does the data help you in your position as a 
CFO. Yeah, it's the crux uh, of everything we do, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I started my career at, at Home Depot, and they actually offered a, a Six Sigma training class, right? So I, I took them up on the, the, the opportunity for continuous education, and, and later on in my career, I went back and got a, a PMP, Project Management Professional Certification, and, and they're both very similar. And at the core of them, it's it's using data to make data-driven decisions. Let's let's take out the gut feel decisions that we so often make and, and so often can lead us astray. And, and let's rely on data to help us, right? Now, what I've also learned in my career is business definitely is an art and a science. And so that the data is, is definitely more on the science side. So I'm probably 90% science and maybe 10% art. And, and what I've noticed is our clinicians are probably the inverse of that. You know, they're 90% feeling-based in non-data and, and maybe 10% data-driven. So it, it is really good for me to see both sides and to see how I can, I can personally learn and develop and become a better CFO, become a better coworker and, and serve other people. But again, it's probably good for the company to move more towards a, a data-centric model. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a great experience so far at Centerstone and, and Look forward to learning. Well, Andy, uh, after listening to you and having this great conversation, looking at your LinkedIn, your resume, everything that you've done, it's it's quite easy to tell that that you're uh, you, one, you're a hard worker, but you've accomplished a lot, a lot more than most people. And and the things that you do, the things that you have done, that's like the the goal and the objective for a lot of our listeners. You know, they're coming out of of the Harvard College of Business, they're wanting to be CEOs, they're wanting to be uh, CFOs and COOs. What are some of the things that you've learned along your journey uh, that our current students and recent grads would benefit from as they navigate through their careers? I appreciate that. I feel like I've, I've fallen forward a lot of ways. And I feel like a lot of times just a mix up in paperwork, and I'm just waiting for them to figure it out. <laughs> um, but but no, you, you hit on it. Hard work is at the core of everything, right? It certainly a lot of things that, that I've, I've learned, maybe just a couple I'd share with, with the team is first and foremost, humility always wins. My favorite, you know, C.S. Lewis quote is humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less, right? Let's put others in front of our, ourselves. That has really proven true for me. You know, another thing that I say often is it's, it's not our fault, but it is our problem, right? So many things that we deal with, we, we weren't at fault, but taking ownership of it, it's not our fault, but it is our problem, right? So, you know, a lot of things right now post-COVID is this is our reality. So what are we going to do about it? Let's, let's just dive in and try to solve some of these problems. So it's not our fault, but it is our problem. I said earlier, what gets measured gets done right? You can apply that to your personal life, to your, to your workout, to, to your professional career. What gets measured gets done. Again, try to make as much data-driven as possible. You know, last thing that I'd say, what's really helped me in my career, and, and I've, I've been fortunate to build teams and lead teams and be a part of that process. And, and I developed pretty early on a hiring criteria. And, and so I have like three, three things when I interview anyone. I, I try to use the same criteria. Right. And that the first one of that, the three leg stool is, will you do the right thing? Right. High character. Yeah. If it's, it's not on a resume, I can't see that on a resume, but it's a non-negotiable. 
will you do the right thing? Will you, will you raise your hand and, and hold up the line, right? And say, hey, something doesn't look right. So that's the first one. It's non-negotiable. The second one, will you work hard? You know, as we mentioned earlier, you got to put in the work, put in your time. Again, it's hard to see that on a resume. So one, will you do the right thing? Two, will you work hard? And then the third thing is kind of this outside the box. And this is the, the other skills. Would I enjoy a four-hour car ride with you? <laughs> right? And, and I think we all can kind of relate to that of, of a person that, that has a skill set to be able to communicate effectively, right? Can I, can I put this, this hire in front of my board? And can they communicate effectively? Are they, are they going to be all focused on themselves? And, and all those kinds of things, do they have that it factor? Do they have the ability to, to deliver results? All that kind of stuff would come out in a four-hour car ride, right? So can I, would I survive or would I enjoy a four-hour car ride? That, that's a big part of the hiring criteria. Uh, and so that way you're getting high-quality, high-character individuals that can also deliver results. So those things have served me well in, in my career up to this point. That is incredible advice. Uh, I love it. I feel like I'm listening to a football coach or a basketball coach give a halftime speech right now. This is great. Uh, yeah, yeah, run through the wall. I, I don't know if I've ever heard a question like that. Would we enjoy a four-hour car ride? That's, that's a good one. I might steal that one from you. Please again. do. I won't, yeah, I won't charge you any extra for that. It, it actually is really good to, to kind of give those criteria to the person you're interviewing and, and even to your own team. And yeah. so, you know, knowing that that's what the criteria for is, you know, are you comfortable in that setting, right? And you yeah. get a lot of really good dialogue and you get to really get a, a peek into, you know, what, what do they feel like is most important? So, yeah, feel free to use that uh, as you need. I had a coach, he used to say, it's not our fault, but it is our problem, except he would say it like, if you have the ability, you have the responsibility. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> um you know, where I, where I got that, that saying from, it, it was from a, a peer of mine, Dennis Dean, and he, he was a, a coach of a little league baseball team, right? And so second baseman, little, little bitty boy, like little league, he catches the ball, he throws it over first base and just sails the first baseman, right? Sails it over the little kid's head. And, and the first baseman goes and gets the ball from the fence and he walks back. He's, he's all dejected. And the coach, you know, goes up to him and he goes like, I understand, right? That was a bad throw. That's, it's not your fault. But, but it is your problem because you've got to adjust and you've got to adapt, right? And there's so many things that are, so, that are true with that saying, both professionally and personally. It's not your fault, but it is our problem. And so that has always stuck with me. So how can our listeners keep in contact with you and follow along what's next in your story? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to, love to connect. I am on LinkedIn. So I think that's probably the best, be best place. Just feel free to, uh, you know, connect with me there send me a message and, and be glad to follow up. I mean, so many people have helped me along the way. And, and I mean that I hire people that are smarter than me, right? That's the key to my success, which, which is a very low bar. Everyone I feel like is smarter than me, but um, people certainly help me along the way. And, and if I can help others, be glad to do so. Please reach out through LinkedIn. And it's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank and you for your time. it's been great. War Eagle. Uh, War Eagle. War Eagle. War Eagle. Thank you guys. Harvard, inspiring business.